0: Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, many have talked about defunding police in wake of the tragic death of George Floyd. Is that the only answer? Street names, town names, statues, should they all now be questioned in the wake of George Floyd's tragic death? The prime minister is blaming the opposition because they won't pass his bill. Is it their fault, or is it up to the leader of the minority government to make it work? Should he stop blaming others? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Uh, today, Hamilton's Police Services Board is going to discuss a motion brought forward by Councillor Chad Collins about whether there should be a 20% spending cut uh, for police and is 20 sufficient to keep everyone happy. Here is what uh, Councillor Collins had to say. We've been inundated with emails from certainly people who've participated in the recent protests here
1: locally um, with essentially a number of requests. One of them being that, um, you know, we look at defunding uh, Hamilton Police Service and, and possibly reinvesting those resources into other social service programs or services for
0: All right, let's bring in Dr. Greg Brown, research professor, uh, adjunct and instructor, Department of Sociology and Anthropology, Department of Law and Legal Studies at Carleton University. He is with us now. Greg, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Hope you're doing well. My pleasure, Scott uh we hear a lot uh, after the social unrest and what has been happening uh in in the wake of the tragic uh death of george floyd uh, the majority and the biggest uh response we're hearing seems to be defund the police uh give us the definition of that are there various definitions of it and uh my follow-up would be to that is this the only option
2: sure well first we'll tackle the definition so the uh the most militant uh, form of definition, I guess, would be a complete abolition of of any armed agents of the state uh, within society. I think that's probably unrealistic. Uh, I think sort of the way this is coalescing is around a definition of the police maybe um, eliminating or transferring some of the current uh, work that they do outside of core law enforcement responding to citizens in distress, 911 type of calls. So downloading that uh, service onto another, uh, in most cases, yet-to-be-identified entity. So I, I think those are that's the more realistic definition, I think.
0: So is that uh, the only option? It seems that's what we're hearing most in the news at this point.
2: Well, there's a whole bunch of different, there's a range of options. There's the status quo. Uh, We can keep doing what we're doing. Uh, The police could uh, enable more mission creep Uh, since the advent of community-based policing, which was a massive philosophical reorientation of policing about 50 years ago that was embraced across most Western democracies. The police have gradually added, I, I can't think of an example where they've ever subtracted more and more uh, duties outside of strictly what we would consider you know primary response emergency response crime uh, enforcement into a whole wealth of what many people would characterize as you know social services uh, so any reduction in those those secondary social service functions would be a remodeling it would be an option that's available and then a, I guess the third option would be just a complete abolition of the police in the midground which is where I think we're going Uh, I'm excited that we're having this this discussion. A lot of things have happened in policing. There hasn't really been a robust uh, discussion amongst the community about what exactly they want their police officers doing. And more in point with my research into the phenomenon of de-policing, which is police officers uh, electing not to engage in discretionary or proactive functions, there really hasn't been a conversation about how police officers feel about this mission creep and adding on these extra responsibilities to their core duties. So I think this is a a good conversation that we're having.
0: Uh, It is, and it's going to be be fascinating to see what happens moving forward uh, with this. Uh, Another thing I wanted to touch on, and you mentioned here uh, just a minute ago, is that uh, it seems that every year uh, we're asking police to do more and more. Um, A lot of Uh, These same groups are asking for police to be better trained with mental health issues, uh, better trained with uh, hate crimes, cybersecurity, terrorism, and such. Are we asking them to do much? And it just seems odd that we are doing that, yet now we're talking about defunding them.
2: Well, Ontario provides an excellent platform for for what, what you're talking about. So... Many years ago, it was decided by policymakers that it was inhumane to incarcerate seriously mentally ill people in in sanatoriums and mental health facilities. Essentially, they would be locked up or warehoused away from society. And so there was a decision made that that wasn't humane. The idea was that these people would be sent out into the community. There would be extensive community supports or community-based mental health but somewhere along the the rollout of that model, they forgot to implement the whole second part, which is the community-based health, uh, mental health uh, facilities. And so that's what accounts in any major city. I'm situated in Ottawa. You'll see Uh, you know, I've done research with the Hamilton police. I've been in your city. My son did his master's degree at McMaster in in journalism. So I'm quite familiar with your city. You'll see hundreds of homeless people scattered around. These people aren't receiving medical attention or psychiatric uh, assessments. They're not being given medication. And so basically by default, Uh, dealing with those mentally ill individuals in the community fell onto the police just because there was nobody else around to do it. And so we've never really had a conversation about is that something that the police should be doing? Certainly with the kind of training police officers in Ontario receive, I would suggest the answer is no. To become a clinical psychiatrist, uh, you're looking at a PhD, uh, you're talking about probably 10 years of higher education to have those qualifications. Police officers might get a module on an online learning session for an hour and a half about how to deal with mentally ill people. So expecting the police to competently deal with all the variety of mental health crisis that happens in the community is very unrealistic, but the police have to do it because there's nobody else.
0: So, what duties do you relieve the police of?
2: Well, some of the options I've been discussing, uh, obviously, I've been very busy this week with American and Canadian media and, and chiefs of police and police governance, a whole range of things have been discussed uh, you could jettison uh i understand in hamilton they have a a program where police officers work with mental health professionals in a mm-hmm. collaborative sort of environment you and, and i remember
0: when that. and i remember when that was introduced greg i mean it was a huge accomplishment
2: sure so it appeared Some people suggest that model is a good one others uh, obviously want the police removed from that equation whatsoever i think uh one of the police activists in Toronto, I read quoted in the media yesterday, said, you know, we don't need an armed, aggressive, uniformed police officer showing up when somebody's in mental uh, distress. So, so you could remove the police from that situation. You could enhance the um, capabilities of mental health workers to mobilize in the community. People will tell me, of course, well, that's that's great. But what happens if the person flips out and attacks the social worker with a knife or something or physically or who knows what? Uh, those people aren't really equipped to deal with that kind of a scenario in the community. So you could, you could remodel that to, to put that strictly in the realm of health workers. You could jettison uh, police officers in schools, school resource programs, uh, police officers dealing with youth at risk, youth from dysfunctional families experience crisis. You could eliminate a whole bunch of sort of secondary, optional or discretionary, proactive type of functions. And it's going to be up to um, the citizens to express how they want their society policed. I'm encouraged in my city, in Ottawa, uh, the the chief here, Slawley, who came from Toronto, and the head of our police union, who's a personal friend of mine, Matt Scoff, both came out in the media yesterday and said they're they're willing to consider removing some of these secondary functions from, from frontline police.
0: Are you surprised that we are having this discussion now after, again, as I said, when we, you, you, you mentioned the situation in Hamilton with, uh, with, with those for mental health helping out the police? Um, you know, a, again, at, at one point we were looking for more than police to do more of this sort of thing. Have we now realized that is not the answer?
2: Well, I, I, my personal view on it, and it's, and it's empirical, uh, there's empirical support for it from my research, I'm not surprised, but quite frankly, I thought the genesis of this discussion would come from the other um, constituent in the public police relationship, from the police officers. Because my research clearly demonstrates that the vast majority of frontline officers in Canada and and the United States today do not want to be doing these optional discretionary duties because they carry with them an elevated risk for professional consequences that police officers are willing to take on the risk of uh, responding to crimes. But all of these other optional sort of interactions, you know, approaching a mentally ill person to find out what's going on. Uh, We we all experience the carding controversy and those kind of things, you know, police officers are very reluctant to do those kind of duties now. So I thought the impetus for this would come from the policing side with officers saying, yeah, we don't want to, we don't want to do these duties anymore. But it's coming from the other side. And in my opinion, it dovetails quite nicely with the depolicing trajectory that frontline officers are talking about loud and clear.
0: Are you concerned at all, Greg, that, for example, and there's a meeting uh, uh, before the the Hamilton Police Board tonight on this uh, about defunding the police. So, I can see uh, all of a sudden we defund the police, and it's not the responsibility for the police to do, for example, these mental illness calls uh, that they have done in the past. However, nothing of any substance is put in its place. Nothing happens, and now there's just a big gap in service. Thoughts? Sure. I
2: mean, that's a major concern, and you know we're proceeding at breakneck speed here. You know, there's a, also almost a massive societal knee-jerk reaction. Uh, we need to have cooler heads prevail. This is nothing that should be implemented overnight. So, um, you know, uh, I don't have the Hamilton Police Services Board as one of my clients, but I could provide some free advice. (laughs) I I have lots of other police agencies that that are clients of my consulting company. But, you know, slow down a little bit. Think about all the permutations here. Think about, you know, the consequences and things like that. This is not something that should be taken on within, you know, 24 hours or seven days. There's going to have to be an extensive discussion, Identify all the variables in play, probably do some some empirical research to figure out. I mean, this is something you want to get right. If we're going to remodel policing, we want to get it right. We don't want to have sort of a half-hearted effort or a ill-conceived effort and then have it backfire and maybe people get hurt.
0: Uh, the days and and, you know it seems to go on in every city when all of a sudden you know the police budget comes in there's lots of uh, lots of gasps and such are are the days of police departments throwing budgets out that uh, are usually over and above what other departments may be getting within in municipalities are those days gone well
2: if this conversation takes hold it certainly appears that that's going to be the case for sure
0: is defunding the police the only answer
2: well, there's, another, there's a number of other options short of fiscal uh, measures to, uh, to change the police model. Um, you could reorient the optional services that are, are delivering uh, through sort of more collaborative means with other social service agencies. But, um, but it seems like that's not really in the conversation these days. It's, it's more directed towards removing the police, taking them out of uh, these associations in the community rather than, you know, enhancing the collaborative efforts that the police are engaging now with uh, with community-based policing.
0: Will it take this type of extreme request of say defunding police, some are saying even of, you know, up to 20%, will it take that in order for this story to have an impact?
2: I think it's already had a tremendous impact. Even if people, you know, calm down a little bit over the over the intervening period here, and take a measured look at what what they're proposing and consider the pros and the cons. Uh, regardless of how this shakes down in terms of an actual um, removal of funding from policing, the conversation is is going to continue. I think we're definitely headed towards um, some kind of remodeling, whether that's a fiscally uh, stimulated remodeling or just a conversation that we're going to have around philosophy of policing. Uh, it's that, There's definitely going to be major changes. Uh, there's no doubt about it. I predicted last September that uh, irresistibly uh, body cameras would be implemented across Canada. At that time, of course, Calgary was the only jurisdiction. Some of my colleagues in the academic world sort of scoffed at my prediction, but it looks like I'm going to be right. because Just as that trajectory seems like it it has tremendous momentum now, this remodeling of the police uh, through the defunding conversation looks like it's going to take hold and there will be modifications made to policing.
0: Uh, last question here, Greg, is it time now for police to speak up and say, okay, here's what we don't mind doing. We don't want to do this anymore. You guys take that back over. And again, let's remember it ended up in the police's lap because governments provincially and federally just kept downloading stuff and there was nobody to do it.
2: Well, exactly. I mean, my research involved, uh, over 3,500 frontline police officers across Canada, 18 different departments, including uh, I think probably almost around 300 of your Hamilton frontline officers. And loud and clear, the message came from the frontline officers. We don't want to do these jobs anymore. We, we don't want to be the point person dealing with somebody in a mental health crisis. That's a jackpot for us. Our interaction with that person is going to be on video. If the person becomes violent and you're into a use of force episode, uh, we don't want to be interacting with Citizens in the community because, you know, we find them suspicious or it's a high crime neighborhood that we flood with a special task force, which is often conflated with aggressive sort of zero tolerance type of policing. We don't want to do these things anymore. These are recipes for accusations of racial profiling, not being sense enough to mental health people using force when it's not uh, required and so police officers are more than willing to give up these uh these secondary functions that have developed as part of their duties in the last 50 years
0: are the same people who are now asking to defund the police the same people who asked for these secondary uh, uh these secondary responsibilities as you put it
2: well that's a very interesting question and uh, uh, one I, I actually don't have the answer to i mean i, I like to base some empirical evidence i suspect probably they are um but i but i can't say that with any kind of data uh supporting my view but but for sure there was lots of calls for you know the police need to do more you know we need to help these impoverished communities that was the whole um uh, nexus for the introduction Mm -hmm. of the community-based police model so uh i guess opinions change over time and and we're looking at a a revolution in, uh, in policing
0: Dr. Greg Brown has been with us, research adjunct professor, Department of Sociology and Anthropology, Department of Law and Legal Studies at Carleton University. Greg, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Anytime, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. Talking about uh, uh, the social unrest and the conversations that are being had in the wake of the tragic death of George Floyd. Uh, We've just talked about uh, defunding uh, the police and the movement behind that. Also, uh, a movement on to remove any statues. Uh, related to the cause, or uh, even petitions to change the names of street. A Toronto man has launched a petition that asked uh, City Council to rename Dundas Street, uh, which of course raises the, the question, should we consider re- renaming the area known as Dundas here in Hamilton? Uh, Emil Joseph, assistant pres- uh, professor with the School of Social Work at McMaster University, was on with Bill Kelly this morning. Here's what he had to say. When you
3: think about Dundas
0: as the town, it would
3: be hard to not think about all of these other towns and these other streets that have been implicated in colonial nation-building projects, you could think about renaming a place like Dundas to uh, something around Coote's, as it was before. But uh, mm-hmm. Thomas Coote himself was, you know, a British officer. You can think about John Graves Simcoe, who people have also thought about particular violent history associated with John Graves, and removing his name from a number of things. But then you would have to think about Bathurst, and yeah, and Jarvis.
0: All right, and uh, other interesting note on this from the sports world. NASCAR has announced that uh, it is demanding that uh, everyone who attends uh, a race or a function under the NASCAR banner know Confederate flags, which, if you know, are, are widely seen in the infield of uh of some of the races so what should be done when it comes to statues or street names or or town names for that matter let's bring in bernie farber chair of the canadian anti-hate network he is with us now bernie thank you for the time I hope you're doing well
3: i am doing well scott i hope you're doing well as well
0: yeah we're all in the same boat you know trying yes, to move along are. and get along with this uh all right bernie we're at an unbelievable time in society let's talk about that first your thoughts of where we are
3: well, this uh th- this particular time is seminal I think in the uh development of I mean the world really. Um, the pandemic that's hovering around us has I think amplified pretty well everything. And of course the uh the killing uh, the tragic uh, murder of uh, George Floyd um, has exploded onto the scene and uh, has impacted the world absolutely the world. It, it, it's, it's, it's amazing just sitting back and, and watching this impact. And frankly, it's about time. I mean, we have gone through uh, riots in the United States that date back to the early 60s, 1968. You can remember Detroit and Watson. But none of these sadly had any lasting uh, implications. I believe that what we're going through today is going to change the world. Um, I think that we're going to, and we will come out of this pandemic in time uh, whether whether it's 6 months or a year everything has an, a beginning point and an end point but this pandemic will will change us uh, viscerally and um, i'm i'm hoping it will change us for the better um, we are seeing uh demonstrations happening that i don't think certainly in my lifetime and i you know i was brought up as a baby baby boomer child and i went through the 50s and 60s and 70s 80s 90s i don't i really don't think i have seen anything Quite like this before uh, that in the middle of a pandemic uh, demonstrations bringing together tens of thousands of people, not just in Minneapolis but Los Angeles New York, Moscow, London and Toronto, the streets of downtown Toronto just uh, you know a Sunday or two ago were filled with thousands of people uh, demonstrating many on behalf of the family of George floyd and and, and the family of a young a black woman that was that was uh, tragically uh, killed. We don't know the circumstances there yet, and we're still trying to figure that one out. Um, but we also have to remember that when it comes to Canada, we have a different uh, a, a different view of what racism really is. Um, where while there is undoubtedly anti-black racism, and has been here for as long as Canada has been a nation. Uh, the type of racism that really impacts Canada tremendously, of course, is anti-Indigenous racism. Uh, that's been with us since, uh, since even before Canada was itself a nation. And it continues to, to this very day. So we have some struggling to do and some history not to change, but to re-understand, if I could put it that way. And so the calling for street, city streets to, uh, names to be changed and for uh, statues to be brought down, I believe, are quite understandable, but exceedingly complex to put into action. And we, we have to think this through as to how we're going to do it without losing our understanding of history, good and bad, because all history comes with good and bad. And sometimes these names and these statues can be used to teach valuable historical lessons that we have yet to learn.
0: Um, you talked about this being different Bernie and I've had this conversation with many through uh, this whole event and in this when this all started. Um, why is it different now? Is it because of that video that we all saw, that 8 minutes and 40 seconds? Because, again, when, when I first heard of this and people asking for change, to me, I thought this reminds me of the mass shootings that happen in the United States and everybody's up in arms for a couple of days and then nothing ever happens. So True. what's different here? What's different? Well,
3: first of all, it's gone beyond a couple of days. I mean, we're going into almost a month now, three weeks anyway, and I, I, I don't see any end in sight at, at, at this point. And I don't know where the end point is, but I'll tell you what I think is different, honestly, is the pandemic itself. It has made us hyper aware of ourselves as human beings, our frailties, uh, you know, the possibilities of sickness and even death hovering around us makes us even that much more aware of life and the need to ensure that life, that this precious commodity, this precious thing that we have called life is equally uh, felt uh, positively by everybody, black or white or Jewish or non-Jewish or uh, indigenous. Um, I think it helps us realize the, the preciousness of life and the need to uh, to safeguard it and to ensure it. And the that that eight that video that we saw, that eight minutes and forty six seconds of of the uh, of, of the police officer uh... leaning on the neck of george floyd it it i I think this became the 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 straw that literally literally broke the camel's back and people just said enough and by the way it's not just people of color Uh, take a look at the demonstrations there are you know people of different shades and different faiths and different communities they're all out there even the prime minister of canada took a knee in ottawa police officers are actually uh marching along with protesters this is a movement that uh is as i as as i say is going to change the world there is not an end in sight i don't know what that ending point uh, scott is going to be but it has to be change and you know we have to start engaging in open and honest and constructive um conversations with with those who fe- who have felt this pain for such a long period of time we have to begin as as people to understand each other and and that's you know that, that's it's easier much easier said than done
0: it, you bring up a very interesting point here, Bernie, that I hadn't thought about before. Because for me, it was the video. I think that's what made the impact. But as you said, uh, very much the straw that broke the camel's back. What I find interesting in what you said is our hyper—these uh, are my words—our hypersensitivity towards the pandemic has now aided towards this. So you that in combination of what is going down, uh, the right combination of those forces, perfect, I guess, it's
3: a perfect storm—a perfect uh, storm, yeah. yeah. It has come together. Um, I, I have many friends in, in, in a diversity uh, of, uh, of communities here, and uh, we all have a lot of talking to do. Um, you know, Black Lives Matter, and, uh, and people say, "Well, all lives matter." Well, of course, all lives matter, but it's true to say, sadly, that many of us really didn't think that Black lives mattered maybe as much as other lives, and that's what this is. All about. It's not a matter of saying only, uh, only Black Lives Matter. It's a matter of saying, understand us, understand the pain that that we have gone through, understand that worldwide people watched as a white officer murdered a young black man in in, in, in front of everyone, and nobody did a thing. What does that say? By the way, not the first time in history that a particular minority group was, was chosen for discrimination and murder and pain. Of course, Jews went through it during the Holocaust. The Roma people also went through it during World War II. Uh, people like me would say that, uh, that indigenous people in this country uh, were part of a Canadian genocide uh, that took place over almost 150 years. Uh, but here we are now. This has become the expression of pain of those who no longer are going to take it anymore. And I'm reminded of that great movie, which name, of course, I can't think of, but uh, it was Peter Finch, who was uh, a, a, a reporter, a journalist, yelling out the window, I'm mad as hell, and I'm not going to take it anymore. And this is, I think, what is happening. People are mad as hell because of everything going on, and they aren't going to take it anymore. And this is their stand. This is their line in the sand.
0: You know, prior to COVID-19, we'd have many discussions on this show how life had become one of extremes. Either your opinion's way over there or it's way over there, and the compromise, the discussion, the negotiation has somehow disappeared. We're living in a very divisive world. Has COVID-19 brought us together?
3: Well, in a strange way, it it has. Um, I think it has actually forced us to look both inward and outward. We're all at home, so we can't come together. But in a strange way, because of social media uh, and television and radio, uh, we are forced to do things like, oh, my goodness, we have to sit and listen to the news, or we have to read a newspaper, because literally there's nothing else to do. And uh, we're all seeing and reading and understanding the same thing. Now, look, let's be clear. There are people out there, Uh, that will always be bigoted and racist, uh, and there's very little that you can do about them. I remember listening just the other day to a commentator on either CNN or MSNBC, or maybe it was even Fox, I don't know, and he he said a very interesting thing. He said 30% of Americans have always been stupid, uh, and that will never change. But what has changed now is that people are seeing it for the first time in front of their eyes. I don't know if that's true or not, but it really opened my my understanding of uh, how we viewed our own little circles, and we never really looked outside of our own little circles. Now, because of COVID, because we are forced to really concentrate on everything that's going on in a strange and, and, and maybe good way, it has brought us all together.
0: Uh, many have talked, well, you know what, let's let's get to the street names and, and museum and, and statues and museums and this sort of thing. We're having this discussion again. Again, it, it comes up every so often, obviously with the George Floyd uh, death, and now it has uh, resurfaced again. What do we do when it comes to street names, town names, and statues of, of yeah. past history?
3: This, this, is, this is, I think, much more complex than you can do either A or B. Um, I think that there are some statues and some names, be it of schools or public institutions, that will definitely have to change. And I remember when I was uh, teaching myself about uh, what happened to Canada's Indigenous people, and uh, Phil Fontaine was great uh, Indigenous leader and, and, and the uh, Grand Chief of the Assembly of First Nations for many years, and uh, a well-known uh, Indigenous Canadian thinker, once said me, that he says. Imagine how I feel. He said having to send my son to a to a high school called Sir John A. Macdonald High School. He said, "Bernie, for you, it would be like you sending your children to a school called Heinrich Himmler Public School." Hmm. That really cut me thinking. Um, there is no question that Sir John A. Macdonald is the father of Confederation, but there is also no question historically that he was. Primarily involved in the deaths and murders of countless thousands of indigenous people, especially in the plains uh, saskatchewan alberta uh, in the uh, during the time of the building of, of of the railway, which made Canada a country so what do we do with all of this? Well we have to find a way to 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 teach proper lessons and there 's a couple of things to consider and i'm not i 'm not advocating this I am not a great proponent, by the way, of keeping these statues in place, especially when they are so hurtful to so many Canadians and so many Indigenous people. But we have, rather than simply pulling them down, we have to find a way to teach a lesson, to understand what our history is. One person, a few people I know have have suggested that leave the statues up, but have a plaque Mm -hmm. that tells exactly the history of the person behind this statue. Well, there's a possibility. There have been those that have said, let's take these statues and instead of putting them in a public square with, the, with no context, let's put them in a museum where people can learn about them. Well, there's another idea. As for street names, we may have to d- develop different thoughts. Um, Dundas can be called, I don't know, pick another name, formerly known as Dundas, Ontario, Here's the information on why we changed it. It could be found online, through social media. Better thinkers than I are going to have to come up with how we make those changes. But I think if we're going to be a changed world, an open world, a world with understanding, we're going to have to go through some very difficult things. And amongst those things are these changes of where our former heroes have become not so much heroes anymore when you see them in light of, and you put yourself in the shoes of, those whose families they have destroyed, because that's exactly what happened. Families were destroyed. It may have been 100 years ago, but indigenous people especially are living with the results of that, as people of color in the United States are living with the results of confederate uh, generals and colonels who have been lauded to this very day. Um, uh, you know, have, have been, you know, these statutes have now been brought down because of, of, of their particular, yes, evil history.
0: Uh, I'm going to play devil's advocate here, Bernie. Uh, on that note, people will say, especially historians, um, uh, will say, you know, what do we do? Do we hide the past? Do we learn from it? Um, uh, can oh, we yeah. judge? Can we judge this situation of the past through today's lens?
3: And the answer to, for me is yes. Uh, we always judge everything through present lenses. You can't. You can't say, well, because it happened a hundred years ago, let's just forget about it. No, we we have to learn about it, and we have to educate our children and our grandchildren about it. And uh, you know, I mean, it, 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 there, there are uh, people today, uh, people of color today in the United States, whose great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents were slaves, were slaves. And the people who, uh, that made them these slaves and wanted to keep them under the yoke of slavery are still honored uh, by statues in the United States. Um, the Confederate flag is a symbol of slavery to black people. And I understand that perfectly because I know what the swastika means to me when I see it. Um, e- even though neither the confederate flag nor the swastika itself, uh, the swastika flag, um, are illegal in this country, nor, they sh- nor should they be. But they shouldn't be waved around as, as, as banners of honor. These statues should not be statues of honor. And we have to find a way, that's why I say better people than me, but we have to find a way to use these items, these things, these historical whatever, as ways to teach lessons for the future. If we just let it stand, we will have learned no lesson from from George Floyd. We would have learned no lesson from anything today.
0: Uh, you you bring up a valid point, and and this was brought to my attention many years ago when talking to uh, uh, the caretaker of the Hamilton Tie Cats, uh, Bob Young, and the issue was the Confederate flag and 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 we had the discussion about history and its place in history and such and he said the exact same thing he goes when i talk to players and i see in their eyes how hurtful it is to them because it means nothing or less than that to us is no reason to let it continue and i think that's what we're now viewing especially with the death of george floyd is um, not everybody has the same feeling as you know the average white person or, or or the average Canadian. There are people who look at things differently, and we have to understand where they are coming from before we can arrive at a solution here.
3: Well, this is precisely the point, and 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 our education system has to catch up. Uh, we just have not. Um, I can tell you that when I was growing up and when I went to high school in Ottawa. Um, and was taught about Canadian history um, and by the way in this in the 60s and 70s there still were residential schools in this country there was not a word in our Canadian history books about residential schools there was not a word about the manner in which Canadian authorities dealt with indigenous people uh in our history books by the way there was hardly a sentence about the holocaust in, at that time either that has changed you know, now, today, history books are changing to reflect the reality. This is a good thing, but we have to continue on this upward motion and, and not have it level off. Uh, standing in the shoes of those that felt fear and pain and slavery and discrimination and talking to people and understanding that pain, we, we all have to do this collectively as, as, as communities of Canadians. Um, but we need, uh, you know, we need um, a platform with, with, with which to do that. The only platform that we can do that with safely and properly is our school system. And uh, they have a big job ahead of them in terms of making those changes and ensuring that history is reflected properly because we need a new generation of young people arising out of this time this is a very historical time scott we have we need this new generation of young people to to begin to reflect that change and if we don't have that i fear i really fear for for who we are as a people
0: well said, Bernie Farber has been with us, chair of the Canadian Anti Hate Network, talking about street signs and statues and the ongoing discussions that have uh, that have uh, the positive. That is the positive thing that has Absolutely. come out of the tragic death of George uh, George Floyd. Uh, Bernie, thank you so much for the time and insight. As always, much appreciated. Be well. Thank you, Scott. You too, keep safe. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. A little problem in the House of Commons today. Uh, in the sense that, or I guess, yesterday uh, a bill wasn't passed to uh, provide uh, relief for those disabled, and uh, it was fascinating today watching the prime minister, who s- definitely seemed agitated, upset that the opposition, and I guess specifically yesterday it was NDP, today it was uh, the Conservatives, he was attacking, and saying that uh, you know they would not make the concessions to allow this to go through. Where in a minority government, that's not their job. In a minority government, it's up to the leader of the minority government to somehow make it work. You can't just stand there and yell at everybody else because they don't agree with you. You have to bring them in. It's not the other way around. And yet the pre, the prime minister is, is making it sound as if they're stopping him. Well, again, it's his position as leader of minority government to make this work, not theirs uh fascinating this is what the prime minister had to say earlier on about all of this our government tabled legislation that would among other things provide a much needed one-time payment of up to 600 dollars for canadians with disabilities the conservatives refused to even allow the house to debate this legislation never mind voting for or against it to make sure the support could move forward we separated the measures for people with disabilities from everything else in that legislation all other parties agreed and it was only the conservatives that stood in the way all right let's bring in Daniel Ballon professor director of the McGill Institute for the study of Canada at McGill University he is with us now Daniel thanks for the time hope you're doing well
1: Uh, yeah thanks for the invitation I'm doing well
0: Uh, Daniel obviously uh, the prime minister agitated today at where uh, this bill is and the fact that it had stalled in the house Uh, very very critical of the NDP yesterday conservatives today uh, about not supporting this, is it up to them to support it, or as leader of the minority government, is it up to him to make those concessions and pull the parties together?
1: Yes, yeah, Scott, I agree with what you said before. We heard the prime minister. I think that. Um it 's a minority situation it 's a strong minority government. They only need support of one party at the time to get things done, except when they want to expedite the process, as was the case yesterday. In that case, they will need unanimous uh, consent from uh, from MPs they didn't get it, obviously. Uh, I think that um, they, the the problem I think that the Liberals are facing now is that the crisis is um, is not nearly as 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 strong as dramatic as, as it was early on in terms of covid-19 and as we reopen um, uh, society, there is a push by the conservatives to uh, resume business as usual in Parliament and the House of Commons, and that the liberals are not interested in that. And that's the demand of Andrew Shear. That's what uh, um, that's what he asked for yesterday. But then the uh, the NDP and the Bloc they want different things. So the the, the NDP they uh, they, um, they support the, the disability provision and the idea of. Having two different bills, but they oppose, um the changes to the CERB, uh, the Canada uh, Emergency Response Benefit, to, to impose potential, um uh, jail time or at least fines on, on people who, um uh, who abuse the system and who try to basically uh, uh, defraud the federal government. Um, and as for the bloc, they want uh, a fiscal update. They want uh, a premier's, uh, a first minister's meeting uh, on health care funding uh, for the provinces and territories. So basically they are asking for different things. So it's the... The, the role of not just the Prime Minister, but, um uh, Pablo Rodriguez, who's the, the government House leader, to work with opposition leaders to try to at least convince, uh, uh one of them to, to support the government. Um and it takes, uh, time to do this and they, they, they are used, uh, uh during this crisis to get things done really, really rapidly because the opposition parties are very compliant, but now they start to uh, to become less compliant because the, the 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 crisis is is not nearly as dramatic as it was at the beginning, and so they they think that there there should be more room for discussion, for debate, and um, and that the government should not just do uh, uh, that the Trudeau government should not just do as it pleases, and that they actually realise that they are in a minority government context. And not act like if they were a majority government.
0: So, why is the Prime Minister blaming the opposition for not following? what he wants is he trying to confuse the public of what the role of a minority leader and minority government is because again as we've already mentioned it's up to him to make this work it's up to them to provide the opposition so he's the one that's got to make the compromise is is he conveying that message to the canadian public
1: yeah it's interesting so this morning he said uh, during his press conference that the the opposition parties were playing politics. Well, playing politics is what political parties do. <laughs> That's their nature. And, yeah. and, and when the prime minister says that, he's also playing politics in a way. Uh, you cannot really escape from politics. Of course, partisanship took a back seat at the beginning of the, pri- uh, at the, beginning of the crisis, partisanship was much less obvious, and parties had to work together very quickly to enact emergency measures. But now that the emergency level is maybe not as, as dramatic, as high as, as a few months ago, uh, the, the opposition parties want to have a word to say and and that they are not just sidelined, just like Parliament at the House of Commons more generally, and that they actually can shape legislation in a, in a more meaningful way. And so I think that the prime minister tries to divert attention from this uh, reality and the fact that Parliament has been sidelined and focuses on the nature of the benefits and the fact that some of these benefits are popular. So the $600 uh, for people with disabilities, it's a popular merger. The NDP and the Bloc are certainly behind it, Uh, but they... uh, they, they, they are not on board with all of the, the government's agenda, and, and some compromise is needed. So I think they need more time. And when you're in a minority context, normally things take quite a bit of time. And we, we over the last few months, political time accelerated. It was compressed, in a way, uh, at the, the peak of the crisis. But now we are slowly going out of it, at least for, for the time being, unless there is a second wave, and, and people want to take a bit more time to uh, uh, discuss and debate issues. Uh, that's at least the case for the NDP and uh, the bloc. As for the Conservatives, they want to reopen Parliament and go back to business as, u- as usual. Uh, it might not happen uh, um, you know, next week, And but I think the pressure is mounting on government, not just pressure from the Conservatives, but also from journalists and, and people outside Uh, the the political arena to actually uh, go back to business as usual uh, in terms of the house of commons. Um, And so we will see how it goes, but it shows that maybe that things will become a bit more difficult politically for the Trudeau government starting now, because uh, there is a sense that we have a bit more time to discuss the issues. And also we have big challenges to face like growing deficits. And we still are waiting for a fiscal update from uh, the the government which is long overdue
0: Uh, the prime minister seemed visibly upset today certainly more aggressive than we normally do see him uh certainly a lot more passion than we normally see him maybe we should see more of that and and uh as opposed to just reading from blue cards uh and giving the standard answer is the public believing him is it time for parliament to get back to work
1: well, I think that uh, it has to happen sooner rather than later. Right? I, you know, this we live in exceptional times, but um, you know, these exceptional measures, especially uh, you know, basically suspending regular um, the regular activities of the House of Commons and replacing that with this you know committee, special COVID nineteen committee. I mean, this is something that uh, should should end sooner rather than later, and I think that. Um, you know, this crisis politically has been quite beneficial for the Trudeau government and in the polls, if you look at public opinion, uh, and pretty bad for conservatives. And one of the factors behind this, and that's why I think the conservatives are also so in a hurry to reopen the House of Commons, go back to business as usual, is that the prime minister has this huge public profile, right? Because yeah. uh, of television, he gets free TV every day, he has this press um, this press conference, and he's really the center of attention. And he, the federal government is sending checks to so many Canadians, uh, um, and people have rallied behind the federal government in, in uh, um, this uh, time of crisis. Uh, so you know, maybe politically it's advantageous for the Liberals to keep the the Parliament the way it is now, which is you know uh, basically sidelined. Um, but but I think that for the Conservatives, they they really hope uh, that. You know, Andrew Shear could be on the floor of the House of Commons more regularly and, and, and to really criticize the government and have a bit more visibility. But of course for the conservatives, I don't think that things will improve uh, so much before they they select their new yeah. permanent leader, and that will only be in late August. So that was delayed by COVID-19. So far, so far, COVID-19 has been really bad for the Conservatives politically, because they delayed the selection of their new leader, and also they um, they sidelined Andrew Shearer as the leader of the opposition because Parliament has been sidelined.
0: Uh, The Prime Minister seemed agitated uh, today. Is this the end of the COVID-19 honeymoon for him? Is this the end of the political isolation? Is it time to move beyond the black door of Rideau Cottage?
1: Yeah, I think that uh, it it might be the beginning of the end. Again, it depends how this situation evolves in terms of the number of cases. I think uh, we see here uh, in Quebec and in other parts of the country, obviously, but Quebec was in, in a really bad situation, that things are improving. Uh, slowly, gradually, so uh, at some point people will want, um, you know, the House of Commons to, to uh, resume its regular activities, and people will want more accountability, will want a fiscal update, will want more transparency, and will want to discuss, uh, to have more, just more consultation before, you know, billions and billions and billions of dollars are spent. So it's normal at the beginning of a crisis of this magnitude that, you know, we did things really fast like enacting the CERB, the the, the Canada Emergency Response Benefit. Uh, but now we have to correct some of these policies that were enacted so fast that sometimes they were, you know, flawed, right? But maybe we should take our time, at least take, instead of, you know, debating that for a few hours, taking a few weeks to... Uh, um, even if it takes, you know, uh, 10 days to do things right and to make sure that people are consulted about this. But in the end, it's all about politics. Uh, Even when the prime minister says that the opposition parties are playing politics, he's a politician too, and the crisis has not erased that. It put partisanship to the backstage, but now it's back to the front stage. And today, I think, or yesterday, uh, was possibly a turning point.
0: Daniel Boulin has been with us, Professor, Director of the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada at McGill University. Daniel, thanks so much for the time and insight as always. Much appreciated. You be well.
1: Thank you very much. Be well as well and have a great afternoon.